2: You can find these satellite images of stuff building up on the border between Russia and Ukraine. You know, it's publicly available. It's not classified. Slate's Fred Kaplan says military folks, they know what this stuff is. Battalions of troops, weapons of war.
1: But these latest satellite images from Russia suggest Moscow is now engaged in an unprecedented buildup near the Ukrainian frontier, enough to mount an overwhelming invasion.
3: Well, it it shows that a lot of, about 90,000 troops, a lot of tanks, some of which have been moved to the Ukrainian border from as far away as uh, the far southeastern part of of, of Russia.
1: The front line between Ukraine and Russia is on high alert tonight. All leave canceled for the troops who will be spending the holidays in the trenches.
3: Muddy
2: today. Yeah, I mean, if this was happening on our northern border with Canada or southern border with Mexico. Yeah, it would be alarming. It would be alarming. If you've heard anything about this troop buildup around Ukraine, alarm is probably what's resonated the most. Alarm that Vladimir Putin is testing the West. Alarm that Russia might expand an ongoing military operation inside Ukraine. But I wanted to talk to Fred because alarm was not his first reaction to this news. What I'm about to say is the
3: kind of thing that, if I'm wrong, could be played back six months from now and and make me look really stupid. But I, I don't think that he's going to invade Ukraine. I don't think that's what's going on.
2: Why do you say that? If they were really
3: going to invade Ukraine from the east and from the west through Belarus, kind of a pincer movement, and then occupy the place, they would need a lot more than 90,000 troops. Second, uh, there will be it's not going to be going in and crushing the place. There will be armed resistance, there will be Russians coming back in body bags. And finally, as, as, as in general, Putin has been quite cautious in the use of military force. So this doesn't
2: fit the pattern. It doesn't fit the pattern. Today on the show, what a buildup of troops on the border with Ukraine really means, and how a diplomatic approach might change the way this story ends. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Fred says, to understand this tug of war over Ukraine, which is really a fight about whether Ukraine is allied more with Russia or the West, it helps to understand a little something about the Russian psyche. Fred lived in Russia in the early 90s. The USSR had just broken up, and Ukraine had gone its own way. Fred says... He looks at Vladimir Putin's actions now, and he can see how the loss of Ukraine still stings. I was there from 1992
3: to '95, so I mean, early post-Soviet, the economy was was you know really in the gutter. Huge industries like like one of their biggest missile and space companies was making sleds and bicycles. Uh, Western economists were coming in advising them. There were billboards all over the ring road in Moscow advertising Western companies in English. And I can imagine someone like Putin, proud Soviet nationalist, uh, who thought that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. He felt like his country was being occupied.
2: Yeah, like an invasion, a corporate invasion.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just an invasion, linguistic, all kinds of things. Now, I'm not justifying any of this. What he did, that was horrible. Whether or not he considers Ukraine part of Russia, uh, the international community regards Ukraine as a sovereign nation, and, and it is. But I'm I'm you know, I I I I understand where he, where he's coming from, and and I guess part of that. Uh, comes from from living in, in Russia at the time of, of, you know, just after the collapse of the Soviet Union.
2: Even if this troop buildup along the border doesn't result in all-out war, Fred says what's happening there is a reflection of an ongoing push and pull Putin is fostering, a push and pull that is not going away anytime soon. Because when Vladimir Putin looks at Ukraine, he does not see an independent nation.
3: Someone like Putin doesn't regard Ukraine as a country. It's part of Russia. It used to be part of Russia. He thinks it's still part of Russia. It was part of the Soviet Union. Russia is the Soviet Union and so it's still part of Russia.
2: And I've heard that it's also it has a great cultural significance for a lot of Russians.
3: Well, I mean, you know, I mean, dating back, you know, a thousand years, Ukraine used to be a part of Russia. Uh Uh, Most people in Ukraine speak Russian. A deeper history. Yeah. Another historical thing that's worth pointing out, I think, is that when the Soviet Union was falling apart, Bill Clinton, his administration, pledged to, to Yeltsin, to Boris Yeltsin, that after the unification of Germany, that NATO would not move any farther eastward. And then over the next few years... NATO takes over just about every country that used to be in the Soviet Union's Warsaw Pact. The Baltics, Poland, Czech Republic, you know, all these countries. And in terms of Ukraine, four administrations have considered whether to invite Ukraine into NATO and have decided, no, not a good idea, mainly because it would be seen as extremely provocative to Russia.
2: This fight over NATO membership has come to define the back and forth between Russia, the United States, and Ukraine. NATO was formed to defend European allies from Soviet threats, and Ukraine has faced plenty of those. But NATO, and the West more generally, they've been hesitant to extend themselves on Ukraine's behalf. You can see that hesitancy if you look back to 2014. That's when Ukrainian demonstrators helped drive their Putin-approved president out of power. And in response, Russia annexed Crimea and started a war in the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine. The U.S. looked at all that was happening, a violation of the international order, and said, I think we're going to sit this one out militarily. Seven years on, that war in the Donbass region, it's still raging. Over 14,000 people have died. The
3: reason why Obama, when the uh, annexation of Crimea happened and the incursion into eastern Ukraine. The reason why he responded mainly with economic sanctions instead of a uh, counter-military punch, he, he said this explicitly. He said, well, look, Ukraine is a lot more important to Russia than it is to the West and everybody to the United States, and everybody knows this, so well, I'm not going to get into a military escalation that I'm going to lose. Russia huh. will respond... To whatever we do on a, in a military way, and even now, nobody that I know of—I mean, even even if if, uh, if Russia does invade the rest of Ukraine, nobody's talking about sending U.S. troops to to defend. No, n- nobody's nobody's saying that.
2: Okay, so I have a good understanding of how Russia feels about Ukraine. I have a good understanding of how the West feels about Ukraine, which is kind of lukewarm. How does Ukraine feel about Russia and the West? And how has that changed?
3: Well, I mean, I think there's a big difference between Western Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine. In, in Eastern Ukraine, especially in the Donbas region, there, there are many people who would be fine with just rejoining Russia or joining Russia. I mean, the fighting going on in the Donbass region is it's mainly Ukrainians versus Ukrainians. It's Ukrainian army versus uh, separatist Militants funded by Russia. Funded by Russia, yeah, absolutely. So it's it's not a terribly unified country in in that regard,
2: huh? But my understanding is, if you looked at polls, like before twenty fourteen, yeah, Ukrainians didn't really want to join NATO. They, That's they, right. They were sort of fine with it as things were, but then after two thousand fourteen, and after you know this incursion by Russia, which has continued, opinions changed. That's right. Well, yeah, again, yeah, before
3: 2014, they didn't want to join NATO. They kind of felt comfortable having this kind of neutral position within the center of Europe. Uh, But yeah, let's say that what I've been saying is absolutely right. And people took some assurance from that, that, oh, well, Putin isn't really going to invade. He's just trying to put a lot of pressure on the political future of Ukraine. Uh, that's, that's That's a concerning thing. That's an alarming thing. Uh, you know, he he certainly is doing things that if he did want to invade, this is the sort of thing he would be doing. And so, yeah, people in Ukraine are more likely to say, you know, it would be nice to to have a big military alliance headed by the United States behind me, which has this Article 5 of its charter that uh, an attack on any one country should be treated as an attack on all of the countries.
2: Well, and earlier this year, the Ukrainian president started to really say more loudly, "I want to join NATO." Yeah,
3: yeah, he's saying and it now.
2: Yeah, and that's not a crazy request, since in two thousand eight, NATO promised Ukraine that they could join at some point in the future. So, you know, they're saying that some point is now. Please.
3: Yeah. Well see I I think and I'm not I'm not alone here and again I I I do not follow the Russian line on anything, but I think this was a this was a bad mistake. It does nobody any good to hold out promises or even possibilities that are just not going to happen. And they're not even in your interest to happen. And and again it, it if it doesn't explain Putin's motives, it at least provides a nifty rationalization, a rationale, a public rationale for why he's doing what he's doing. You know, I've read columnists saying, oh, he's just making this all up. We're, we're not going to let Ukraine join NATO. And yet there's that commitment that George
2: W. Bush signed in 2008. Huh. And I feel like over the summer, you could kind of see Vladimir Putin responding to this not new request to join NATO, but sort of renewed vigor, I guess, on the behalf of Ukraine. Like, I think you mentioned that over the summer, Putin wrote a whole article about how there's historical unity between Ukrainians and Russians, essentially laying out his case that, like, we're one family, let's keep it together. I don't know who the audience was for that. But I did find it interesting.
3: It was mainly domestic and and it, but it was also Ukraine, and it was also
2: a warning and then the troops started moving. and I read I read this really interesting dispatch. I believe it was in foreign policy where it talked about how the week before the Thanksgiving holiday, the Ukrainian defense minister just came to Lloyd Austin in the Pentagon. And said, "I just need weapon systems because we're seeing this amassing of troops on the border, and I need them fast." Which is a dramatic way to describe it—that all of a sudden it's like, "Nope, we need to go now." And of course, that's a big request because the United States has been hesitant to provide real weapon systems to Ukraine in the past.
3: Yeah, it's mainly anti tank weapons, but then a lot of a lot of things like night vision equipment and better radar and intelligence assistance, which sounds minor but, but isn't. But look, if Russia really did mount an invasion, a full blown invasion, you know, that, that kind of stuff is, isn't going to be terribly helpful. But what it does do, it it lays down a marker. It says, yet you know, yes, the United States by providing these weapons to you, and these are the kinds of weapons that we quite deliberately have not provided to you in the past, we're Saying that, yeah, we we we're backing you. We we've got your back to some degree in some way. It's kind of like uh, our situation with Taiwan, which uh, you know we actually do not recognize as a separate country, uh, unlike the situation with Ukraine. And yet we have an agreement uh, that we will provide weapons to Taiwan, and actually way more advanced weapons than than we provide Ukraine. As a deterrent for China to just, uh, you know, come in and, and take over Taiwan.
2: Yeah, these these agreements are kind of hedges against autocracy. It's, it,
3: these two countries, Ukraine and Taiwan, they're examples of what some people call strategic ambiguity. I mean, where we sort of have a commitment to them, but not quite. Uh, for many years... These relationships have been allowed to keep things stable. Uh, They've never really been tested. And now, you know, at least some people are saying they might be tested. And we don't really quite know what we're going to do about it.
2: When we come back, some analysts say war between Ukraine and Russia could be right around the corner. But Fred is not convinced that's our only option.
1: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
2: As I have sort of read about what's happening in Ukraine in the papers, I've noticed there are basically two schools of thoughts here for what America does now. There's the full-throated defense of Ukraine, you know, just the fact that this country is asking for help and we've agreed to help them and we morally owe it to them. And then there's the idea of compromise with Russia because war would be a bad outcome for everyone. It it just isn't it isn't good for anyone except maybe Vladimir Putin, although, as you've said, war would involve a lot of risk for him, in terms of his citizens being injured and killed. so you've you have this modest proposal you've laid out for how you think the u s. could navigate all of this. Can you explain?
3: Well, it's long been thought that what what Putin really doesn't want is to keep Ukraine out of any western orbit at all, including the European Union and a democratic some democratic system that works that makes Russia look bad. Maybe, but that's not what he's saying right now. All that he's saying right now, he talks about he wants to keep Ukraine out of NATO. He doesn't want a Western military infrastructure to be laid down inside Ukraine. So my, my idea is to take him at his word, say this is what he really wants, and to work out a way to satisfy that on condition that he also gets all of his troops out of Donbass region and uh, to work out some kind of long-range solution, but with some security guarantees on uh, on the border and also some kind of non-interference with politics in Kiev. You know, why, why have a war start over pressure not to do something that you're not going to do anyway?
2: People who support democratic processes in Ukraine— might hear a proposal like this and say, you are selling out the people of Ukraine. The majority of them want to join NATO. They want the protections of a democratic society. Isn't this abandoning them? Well,
3: again, I don't know anybody. I've asked around. I've said, is there anybody in the councils of, you know, high officials in the administration now, many of whom are very keen, Biden himself, is very keen on on Ukraine. When he was vice president in 2014, he wanted to do more to help Ukraine than, than Obama did. Uh, he wanted to send some lethal arms even then. Uh, but I asked, is there anybody who is saying that what we need to do is to let Ukraine into NATO right now? Or is there anybody who is saying, if Russia invades, we have to send U.S. troops to counter them. And, and what I'm hearing is no. Nobody's saying that. So why base your whole position on an insistence for something that, that you're never going to do anyway? Look, I have no idea whether this approach will will meet success. I don't know. But this is what Putin has laid down on the table. Let's take that as a premise and go from there and see if it see if it works.
2: Earlier this month, when... President Biden and Vladimir Putin had this video call was there any evidence that the Biden administration was thinking through what you'd proposed
3: I mean not that I've I wouldn't necessarily know but no nobody nobody's called me up and said hey we're 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 we're, we're taking up your idea no nobody I not that I know of I think I think it's way premature. I don't think you know the, to the extent there are going to be serious negotiations, uh, they're just beginning.
2: Does it seem like Russia is worried about a backlash from the West or from the U.S.? Uh, it seems that they
3: certainly don't want to get into a war with the United States. They Putin, what what Putin has been doing for the last several years is is you know disrupting and interfering with you know American democracy and disrupting ties between the U.S. and countries in Western Europe, especially when Trump was president, that were uh, provocative and destructive in ways that were indirect and subtle and therefore not likely to provoke direct response from the United States. So he, he, he goes for the indirect approach, which is... Much harder to deal with. He, he, he's but is not... the
2: difference with Ukraine that it would be more direct? It would be more of a real shot across the bow.
3: Yeah, no, no. If he really does do what the more alarmed people think he's priming to do, then yeah, this is going to uh, provoke a tremendous backlash from from the West, uh, which which is one reason why I don't think he's going to do it
2: because he can't afford that. If Russia is not about to go to war with Ukraine, why is it important to pay attention to what's happening there right now anyway?
3: Partly because Ukraine is rattled. And, you know, hey, it's, it's not nothing that they're amassing 90,000 troops on on the border uh, that, that ordinarily aren't there and making all kinds of, of noises. Uh but I, I I think it's not helpful for uh, a lot of officials and officers in our country to act like this is the the you know the, we're on the precipice of of some catastrophic event. I don't think it. I I think that plays into to Putin's political strategy here. I mean, I don't think Putin is just going to wake up one day and say, "Okay, I'm giving the green light." Let's go. But I can't imagine a series of tense moves and counter moves, feints and counterfeints that make both sides feel paranoid and defensive enough that, that something does happen. Huh. Things can escalate, and then the next step becomes almost inevitable as part of some escalation
2: dynamic. That, that's what I worry about more. Fred Kaplan, I'm always really grateful for your perspective here. Anytime, thank you. Fred Kaplan is Slate's War Stories correspondent. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Danielle Hewitt, Mary Wilson, and Carmel Del Shad. Each and every day, we get help from Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I am Mary Harris. If you want, go track me down on Twitter say hi. I'm at Mary's desk. In the meantime, I'll catch you back in this feed tomorrow.
4: Judy was boring. Hello.
1: Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
4: It's my little escape.
1: Now Judy's the life of the party.
4: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
1: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs)